20 years ago, you had maybe one or two big topics that companies could concentrate on and put their research on. But nowadays, you have to concentrate on so many different topics that it's really difficult to, to be always on top of that. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Alice, Lorena, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hey, thank you so much, Sylvan. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Alice, you're the head of innovation at Venture, the innovation venturing by PostFinos. And you, Lorena, are the lead at me of Mira Adventure. We're going to talk about that really nice uh, startup or project that you're leading there in a minute. Before we talk about your initiatives, I want to know from you, Alice, you both started working for PostFinance around 2018, 2019. And what did PostFinance innovation strategy look like at that time? It looked a bit different than today, <laughs> for sure. Um, so I started in, in spring 2018. And back then, the team concentrated especially on entrepreneurship projects. So they wanted to promote um, that internal colleagues um, will hand in uh, some great ideas so that they can coach them throughout the process. And they started slowly to have more and more open innovation activities, collaborating with startups, universities, and um, corporates. But uh, when I when I came there, my uh, main task was to build up all those external partnerships and to having post finance uh, well um, placed in this network so that startups even know that they can collaborate with us. So this was all the start. Why was that a sort of a natural shift, you know, from the more internal focus towards the innovation ecosystem, the more open approach? Because I think the team realized that because we are not that many people, so we can't do all the projects on our own. So we mm -hmm. had the initiatives coming from the colleagues, those internal post-finance colleagues, but we also had the initiatives that have been run by the innovation team itself, so by, by my colleagues and I. And, and then this shift happened because they realized, hey, you can't do everything on your own, so you need to have this diverse, diverse strategy that you have this uh, outside-in, but this inside-out view too on innovation. Great. And you, Lorena Yori, actually had a first contact with PostFinance and the innovation team during your studies in a design thinking course at the University of St. Gallen. Please tell us a bit more about that experience. How did you first get in touch with them and what did you take away from that experience? When I started my master program, Business Innovation, at the University of St. Gallen, I also applied for the design thinking course um, and I've heard many things about the design thinking course and a good friend of mine recommended me to do the course, but I knew it's going to be hard. <laughs> um, so the design thinking course is a program where corporate partners um, reach out to students and you have to solve their most wicked problems. Mm -hmm. And we as a local team existing of four um University of St. Gallen students had to solve a problem for postfinos in the field of retirement. And our challenge was to um, redesign the pension system of Switzerland. So the, the needs um, are going to be met in the future of um, the Swiss people. And it was a very difficult challenge because, as you know, 
pension system of Switzerland, not very sexy, very mm. complex. <laughs> and But we entered this program and um, it was more than 10 months that we came up with 70 prototypes in the end. We iterated, tested each of them. And in the end, we came up with a final prototype that was called DESIRE. So DESIRE stands for Design Your Retirement. And DESIRE was, um, it was like a retirement cockpit consisting of two user interfaces um, that enabled the users to meet their individual pension needs and, and life goals. And in the end of the program, we had the chance to travel to San Francisco pre-COVID times right. <laughs> to present um, our final prototype in front of all the corporates and all the students. And right after we were invited to Bern to present it in front of the management of Postfinals. And they were very um, happy with the end result and they identified a huge potential and they wanted to continue what we um, have established. So they asked two of us if we want to um, enter an incubation program, um, not as a student, but as a as a worker of Postfinals. Mm -hmm. And then Fabio Peterhans, uh, my colleague and me, we, we started working at Postfinals um, in the summer 19, I think. Yeah. Wow, that's like a, a natural <laughs> transition from student project to becoming an employee. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. And Alice, what you also did is working for innovation means not only, you know, building products and, and testing things, but also identifying trends. And you're actually even a trend scout in Silicon Valley. So you didn't move there with your own project, but you moved there to scout trends. So what did he exactly do as a, as a trend scout? In this project, I was sent to San Francisco uh, on a specific project together with colleagues from Swiss Post and Swiss Mobiliar uh, Insurance so that we should explore the data economy and what kind of influence will startups or research projects from the U.S., half uh, for, for Europe or especially for Switzerland. So we stayed there for two months. Uh, we had like several company visits. So Transcounts, what they do is they scout for signals that come up in this specific area, for example, in Silicon Valley, or if you're located in China, this is the point. So you can't do trend scouting from Switzerland in other countries. So you can do some research online, but it's not the same as where, as if you were located specifically in that country. Mm -hmm. So we really dived in, as of back then when I was in San Francisco, we really dived in into this ecosystem, meeting startups, corporates, for sure the big techs, associations. We went to uh, Berkeley, Stanford, meeting professors and so on. So, and, and with all this insight, so we put together into a white paper so that we have some kind of trend report, you could say, showing what kind of scenarios you could might think of could uh, be happening with all those signals we we um, we uncovered while we were, were um, staying there. Great. And with that experience, do, did you notice or do you think that the trend cycles are getting shorter and shorter and therefore also making your job a bit more difficult? Or was that a bit more stable than we might anticipate from the outside? I think they're not shorter. I think what happened now is like that you have to think really parallel. I don't know if they, I don't know if there is like this expression of parallel thinking, but the thing is that 
you have to consider so many different factors nowadays because 20 years ago you had maybe one or two big topics that companies could concentrate on and put mm -hmm. their research on but nowadays you have to concentrate on so many different topics so you can't do only dlt or blockchain you have to do ai you have to uncover what's the future maybe of quantum computing you have to also have an eye on all the fintechs or intertechs or yeah whatever crypto startups that might come up so you have to consider so many factors that it's really difficult to to be always on top of that so because there are some points where you really have to say where do i want to put my effort on do i want to put like 10% of my effort on many different topics or do i put 20 in this 10% on this and so on mm -hmm. we are also still a bit i don't want to say struggling on that but it's we we have one big topic that we are addressing right now is digital assets where we have some more men or women power on the topic uh, and the others are just being researched by individual people, for example, such as Lorena, who's somewhat also having a, a little team now, but still, so she was the only one pushing this project forward, so this topic and the project within forward, or with me especially, I'm more concentrating in the data um, economy area. So this is a bit the point. So how do you want to put your, where do you want to put your effort in? And this this got more complex nowadays, I would say, and it gets more complex even more in the future. Absolutely. And another complex decision that you had to make or that you actually did make in 2021 was that the post-finance lab was rebranded to venture. Why was that the right step to take? As I would have taken this step already two or three years ago because I really <laughs> never liked that name because I think for, for especially for non-German um, speakers, it was pretty weird, like PF lab, flab, or how do you really pronounce mm -hmm. it? So the point is why we had to pronounce it was because of the... Um, the intellectual pro the Swiss Federal Intellectual Property Institute um, told us to do so because we wanted wow. to protect our label, this PF Lab label, because we started with what Miro is one of the main projects. We started to go out um, on the market with that label. So we were uh, putting our projects under that name. And so we thought about, hey, may, may, we might need to protect it because then other people can use this label and yeah. put it some other products behind it. So we have to say, uh, secure it. But then the, the IP Institute told us that it's not possible because of the ETH, because the ETH in Italian is Politecnico Federale and they also have labs and it's not possible that we can protect it. So we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> so after three, five years of having this name PF Lab, uh, we had to rethink, but we found a really great agency in Zurich um, that helped us in this renaming. And what's good now is the PF Lab before stood only for the innovation team. Mm -hmm. And now, but we were three teams in this future banking business unit. So we were the innovation team, the growth team, where Lorena is part of it, the ones who scale the project. And then we have the corporate um, venture capital team. So we have three teams, but PF Lab just stood for innovation. Mm -hmm. And now with venture, we found the name and an identity that fits uh, all the three teams, which is really great because now we really feel all the same under that uh, roof somehow, under the roof venture. Yeah, it's also a very cool brand. Oh, like, thank you. Congrats I'm really happy to, to hear that. that. <laughs> so talking about, you know, the growth, the scale up, we also want to dive in a bit more on a specific project. So your project is called Mira with a double I, and it's a solution to optimize your pension with just a few clicks. So Lorena, first, what problem do you exactly solve with Mira? According to the latest NZZ Barometer, 
Um, the sustainability of the Swiss pension system is the biggest concern of Swiss people. Um, we all know that financial security is a rising concern, um, even in Switzerland. And not only the financial security, but, um, but also, you know, keeping up with the standard that you're living is a problem. And people always, um, start to say they, they save too little too late so um, we wanted to tackle the problem of um, the missing transparency the um, the lacking overview um, um, the missing incentive to start and mm. there's so many problems um, when it comes to uh, retirement and you cannot tackle all of them but we kind of wanted to tackle retirement in a holistic way because there are product on the on the on the Swiss pension market that tackled some of the problems and pains but we wanted to come up with a um, holistic product that also incentivizes young people to start saving and giving them an overview of their financial um, of their financial um, status and yeah the earlier you start the bigger effect you have of a potential compounding interest exactly. right Exactly. So who came up first with that idea of, of Mira? How was the solution born, so to speak? So um, as I already mentioned before, um, there was Desire. And mm -hmm. Desire was a very visionary prototype with a lot of features. And it was impossible to enter the market with Desire. So our um, task was to come up with an MVP, a minimal viable product, mm -hmm. um, that can be tested and validated with real customers um, very quickly. Um, so we designed a product um, to make sure that our vision and our strategy meets um, the needs of the market. And we, as I already mentioned before, identified a lot of pains and we knew that we cannot put all these pains or address all these pains with the MVP. So we thought, okay, what's the biggest pain we want to solve with the MVP. Mm -hmm. And it was this lack of an overview and um, the, the lack of um, having the financial, um, how you say, foresight. So we wanted to come up with a solution that um, tells you what your income is going to be from all the three pillars and what um, salary or what what money you need to to meet these needs and if there is a pension gap between these three pillars and um the i don't know how you say it, the 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 life standard need so um, we came up with this very easy and quick way to identify pension gaps and that tested this with uh, real customers after a couple of weeks so we entered this incubation program with the Inno architects and um, we had a developer we had a UX designer and um, we we developed Mira I think in less than two months and already launched it and could test and validate our hypothesis um, in the market. Wow that's super impressive and I would like to dive in a bit more on these specific processes that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about hypotheses that you were testing. What were they? What was a hypothesis that you had where you said, hey, we want to find this and that out? And how did you validate it? So um, 
In this incubation program, it consisted of different sprints. And one sprint was um, three weeks. It was one week of developing. And after one week, we went live with um, a new version. And then we entered a two-week testing phase. Mm -hmm. And after every sprint, we validated um, our KPIs and hypothesis. And we built our hypothesis um, within the team and always tested them within customer panels. So we, in this one week of developing, we had a lot of customer panels where we had one-on-one interviews or even discussions um, in a big group. And then we came up with um, hypothesis we wanted to test with real customers afterwards. And our specialty was to always have a lot of assumptions and um, you can never trust your assumptions. So we always um, had to validate our assumptions and um, many times we were wrong. And yeah, this was a big yeah. learning for us too. That's part of the game. That's how you learn and get better, ideally, exactly. right? How do you then test? You said you did customer interviews. At what point did you then say, hey, now we also want to see if people would actually sign up or, or purchase the service. Mm -hmm. When was that moment when you said, hey, now it's time for the real test. Is anybody actually putting money on the table or leaving their data for that product? So in this first um, spring phase, um, we went live with the first MVP and then we reached out to our data science team at PostFinance and we asked them if they could help us to identify um, PostFinance customers that match the profile of our early target uh, early adopter target group nice. and they helped us and they gave us the address of more than 1000 PostFinance um, customers um, within a circle of burn. So it was not um, entire Switzerland we run this test, but mm -hmm. um, it was more in the region of burn. And then we sent a letter to all those customers with a QR code on it. And we wanted to see if the people scanned the QR code and even if they tested our solution. And it was very, um, very interesting to see then we had a conversion rate um, of more than 50%. So every wow. second person scanned it and they tested it, which meant that um, our assumption was confirmed. So um, there is a need that we have to address in the market. And what was nice is that we had the addresses of those people so we could call them afterwards and we could conduct one-on-one -on -one interviews with them and ask them, hey, why did you act like this? Why didn't you conduct um, a um, product in the end? Why did you jump off the journey at this exact screen? Mm -hmm. what, how could we improve our um, solution? So this was very um, uh, valuable. Yeah, I, I think there are two important points that you mentioned. First of all, the assets that PostFinance as a corporate can actually bring to the table to mm -hmm. speed up the process of getting into the clients or potential early adopters way faster. And the other thing was really this, this fast learning cycle, but also combined with a high conversion rate, 50%. That's really good. That's mm -hmm. super surprising. Mm -hmm. But it speaks for the need for the problem that exactly. you're addressing. Yeah. In that regard, what was the biggest challenge for you? Because usually it's acquiring the customers, the users. That's one of the biggest challenges that many startups out there face. But for you, 50% conversion rate, that seemed like a walk in the park. Yeah, it seems nice when I'm telling about it, but we had a lot of struggles. <laughs> um, so I think the biggest challenge as an entrepreneur is that you always um, have to keep going, 
stay ambitious and never give up because we had moments that we um, had to pivot our product and couldn't go live because of compliance or legal restrictions. Yeah, so this is, I think this is a benefit when you work within a corporate, you can you can um, benefit from um, legal and compliance and other fields um, of expertise. But it's also a downside because you have to meet all the, um, how you say, restrictions. Yeah. So, um, but after every pivot we learned and we always found a workaround. And I think in the end we came up with a solution um, that, um, was very good for our customers as well, even though it was not the solution that we imagined it would be in the beginning. But it's always pivoting, pivoting, iterating, testing, and then, you know, finding a way. <laughs> I, I mean, doing a pivot, that's also part of the of the startup process, so to speak. And at the same time, you often also face the decision, should we continue or should we just kill the idea? What let you going? I think the inner drive of our team, um, we always kept going. There was never a moment where we said, okay, we should kill it. Maybe we should kill parts of um, the product or parts of the ideas, but we always found a way um, to to redesign the product or to to, to pivot and um, to, yeah, to find a workaround. And mm -hmm. I think you should kill an idea when you realize that there's no need in the market, but we knew that the need is there and we have to address it with our product. And this was the, the, the drive we had. Yeah. yeah and the 50% uh, conversion rate. I mean, that's a very strong number that can also keep you going, gives you a lot of motivation. Yeah. And we had more success moments um, during our journey. And th this always gives you motivation to keep going, especially after, you know, um, failed after having failed right or having the feeling to have failed and if we zoom out a bit alicia from your perspective with your experience what do you think what can actually determine the success of a pilot or when should they say hey it was a nice test but we should actually kill the idea yeah that's that's all <laughs> that's a million dollar question yeah that's really that's a mean question because um i think there there is no golden rule on that so there is not like hey if this and this criteria are fulfilled then it, it's going to succeed or then it's going to fail but there are some elements that you that you can that you can somehow um orient yourself on because for example once is for sure the time timing is key because yeah. they are there are uh, products or services that are ahead of their time. They do not have any market success. So if we see about Twint, so in the beginning, so Twint had a hard time, like so because they had had this great vision of hey, being this mobile payment ecosystem somehow. It's not only payment uh, with the phone, but also then having other services connect to the app and having it provided also by other banks and so on. So it's timing is really key and there are external influences as we see now the pandemic had a very positive effect for Twint in the end. Mm -hmm. But also that you involve key stakeholders because Lorraine already mentioned because even though compliance and legal or security are not like you the most desired uh, stakeholders you want to have in the project right from the beginning. But in the end, the earlier you have them in the projects, the sooner you know if you will be even <coughs> able to proceed with what you're doing or with your assumptions. Because if you think about a service or a product for a bank and then, but then compliance comes up and says, Hey, you have no chance that there, yeah. that, 
the, the Swiss regulatories will say yes to that. So yeah, you have no chance for that. Yeah, you can try a pivot, but try to fight against this legal framework. But in the end, you don't have that much chance. So it's really important to have those key stakeholders right, right on board from beginning. Another crucial aspect is to have this great vision. So to think big is good, but you have to start small. So mm -hmm. I think uh, Lorraine also explained it very nicely with the Miro projects because they said desire would have been too too large to implement in one-to-one. -one. It would have taken maybe years to develop the yeah. entire solution. Um, and then you lose the momentum for the market because you realize, hey, the market is ready now, need something now. And then if you use up two or three years developing something, yeah, use that the uh, the the, the timing so it's really it's really key to also have this um this big vision but these small steps to realize how do i want to validate each assumption how do i proceed with my prototypes with whom will i test them mm -hmm. and so on i think this is this is something that is um that is fundamental to your thinking in the way you approach and especially never fall in love with a prototype or with your first idea because uh, this is something because the first idea will never make it in the end so i never heard of somebody whose first idea and their first prototype were the winning winning project and the ones who got funding so it was never like that yeah. so you really have to be open also to kill your own children somehow um, i hate that expression fortunately i don't have kids because otherwise i would say <laughs> things like that but you have to be really opportunistic opportunistic and sometimes you have to take some decisions that are maybe not good for the company itself but will help them to maybe reach a state where they can build the next s curve in the in mm -hmm. their model so i think this is also something that as an innovation team that you need to be able to do that and even kill not only the chain but also kill your prototypes just say hey sorry that won't ever work either, either pivot or die so fair point Lorena, you mentioned the customer need. That feedback was crucial to kept you that kept you going in the in the early days. Then later down the road, it's usually much more of a business model, a revenue or in general traction question. So you see, hey, there are users coming in, there's revenue coming in. What role does that play for you? And how do you also make money with the with the product? Is is that something that also gives you a headache sometimes? So um after I think 10 months, um, Valu um, approached us and mm -hmm. they um, wanted to start a corporation with us and they wanted to integrate our product in their um, comparison platform. And this was, I think, the first um, big success moment for our team. And um, it, I don't know, we, we didn't talk about monetizing uh, Mira so far, but we were very glad that we had some... Um, traffic um, and we, we we had some reach um, with the corporation with value and um, after the months um, of, of this um, of this corporation um, we, we got the question so how do you make money how how do you are you, the leads um, that you're going to give um, the partners are they are they expensive how much does a lead cost and we said yeah so far, we, we are still um, in the baby shoes and we have never um, ever charged somebody or charged a partner um, for a lead. So this is um, a very difficult question because we are very, um, I don't know how to say, early stage still. Mm -hmm. So if we are going to reach out to our partner and say, hey, to, for every lead, now you have to pay, um, I think 
most of the partners would say, okay, then take me off the platform. I'm not going to pay. And then um, we spent a lot of hours this summer um, to come up with a right business model for Mira. And we did a lot of testing. And this is exactly the question you you asked me, we asked ourselves. So Mm -hmm. what is the business model? And then we realized that it's probably never going to be profitable for Mira to stay a comparison platform. Mm -hmm. And then um, we decided to... Um, make a huge pivot and this is when a um, private bank from Zurich a little private bank called me in the summer and they're they're um, focusing on impact investing and they mm-hmm. called me and said hey we are missing a really sustainable 3a solution on the Swiss pension market and we heard about you and we want to cooperate with you and this was in the exact time when we were overthinking Mira and overthinking our business model and said, hey, we have to finally make some money with Mira. And now this partner or this potential partner approached us. And then we said, okay, let's stay integrated in Valu. Let's um, see how they how their strategies discussion are going to um, result because they said that they maybe could finance our innovation next year. But uh, we didn't want to wait for Valu, so we decided, okay, we want to pivot and we want to um, pursue a new ver- a new vision with this um, new partner. And this is exactly where Mira is now. And we have um, now we have business model ideas. Now we we know how we can make money. Now we see that it could be profitable. And um, it's it's very difficult question because. First, you, you have a lot of months or even years where you put a lot of money into a project and it never, um, how you say? Um, it it ne- never monetizes. It never monetizes. Right? And even if it monetizes, it takes so long until you are break even. Mm-hmm. So um, this was a huge problem. And we, we felt the pressure of the team as well. So we, we put a lot of money into Mira, one and a half year now, and we didn't see any money. And then Valu came to us and said, okay, we are going to finance some of the innovation costs. We're going to finance the licensing costs and we're going to finance some of the developing costs. And this was like the first moment in the history of Mira when we earned money. And um, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, we had a call with the Valu team and they said that they continue their cooperation and they're ready to pay the same amount again. But this is like the old Mira and we want to still be integrated um, in the Valu platform. But now we want to focus on our new vision with this partner. And um, yeah, we we see great potential there when it comes to monetizing as well. Mm. It's very interesting. So you certainly offer a free service that is adding value to the people that want to better understand their future situation when they eventually retire one day. But at the same time, you can't really monetize that directly, but now you start offering a product around that that is tailored to those people, and then you can actually make some money on top of that. That's a nice move. Yeah, so partner are willing to pay when they see, okay, um, it's not an innovation project anymore. We always had the character of being an MVP, mm-hmm. but the people or the partner that we um, integrated in our platform, um, they wanted to see that we are a product, that we don't rely on Valu, for example, to have the reach and the traffic. And 
we talked with Alou two days ago that we have to monetize it either way next year. So I think these discussions are going to take place by the beginning of next year because we have to monetize it. And when some partners don't want to be Omira anymore, then it's their loss. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think what we learned from sharing your very uh, insightful experience is that sometimes success and failure, they are quite close to each other and it's not always clear which way you're going. So maybe then do a pivot if you learn that something's not working. So Alice, you recently even launched two books on those topics, a success book and the failure book. Can you talk a bit more about why you did that? Yes, yeah, because it was just a crazy idea three years ago because uh, we started with the fail book. Um, you always start with failing, uh, sure. So one of our colleagues... Um, back then had to set up an Excel file for one of our management board executives where we had to list every innovation project we ever did and where at which um, in, in which innovation phase it failed. So he had to put together this Excel file. I don't know how many weeks he has been working on that, going through all the old files and anything. And so, and then out of a sudden we were discussing and then the idea came up, hey, how about putting those cases into a book? And so, Hey, we never asked for permission, so we just did it. So um, with my design background, I saw I could put together a book in InDesign. And then so over a couple over a couple of weekends, just before Christmas, we did it. We let it print. So we made four, 500 copies. And then we started giving it out to our friends, also to our innovation friends in the network. And we even gave it as a Christmas, Christmas present to our management board executives, also to all. They got nice. it as a Christmas present. And we thought like, hey, maybe now soon somebody from communication or so will, or branding will come to us and say, hey, you have to get this book <laughs> out of the way because uh, it's not possible that you put that as like release a book and uh, in the back and impress them. There is post finance written in it. So, mm -hmm. but the other, there's something else happened because then our HR ordered 2000 books because they wanted <laughs> that every employee at post finance gets um, a fail book for the, um, to learn about failing and how to learn out of failure and to mm -hmm. promote like a new culture where people are not afraid of taking risks, where risk is okay. As I don't want to say that every department should take risks, um, for example, security, legal, <laughs> compliance, and so of on. Of course, yeah. Oh, the internal audit department, for example. <laughs> <laughs> but all the others, maybe yes. So, um, so we printed those books and then out, out of a sudden, as not out of a sudden, but then, um, I remember people came to us and said, Hey, the book is so cool. We love it. But yeah, everybody can fail. But what, when, when does your success book come out? And then I remember me and, uh, Matthias, the head of, of the venture teams. So, um, we were discussing like, Oh, yes, maybe we have to do a success book. And then, uh, but then we were like, Hey, oh my God, but the success book is going to be really thin because yeah, the fail book. So we had some fails. So from our, I don't know how many projects there were. I think 83, 84 projects from those we have like 73 that failed or 74. Um, so we were like, yeah, but then it's going to be just a little booklet. Uh, but then we started off anyhow, so already designed the cover. And I said back then I knew it has to be golden. It has to be the book needs to be have a golden cover. So I did like a mock-up, I remember. And then we started off, we put together a questionnaire. And then we said, like, come on, let's just spread this questionnaire um, around our uh, network. So we asked people if they want to participate, um, some innovation leaders and other thought leaders. And then, the, yeah, we just got rolling and it was rolling for two years, so for one and a half years, because we were asking so many people in the beginning, we were like 30, 40, 
Then we said, okay, we have to stop. But then we stopped at 72. We asked 72 experts. Mm -hmm. So the book became thicker than the failed book in the end. So because <laughs> we were presenting our nine success stories, uh, one out of it is also Miro. Um, and for example, Twint or our car insurance. But then also the views of those 73 experts, not 72 experts, which is pretty, pretty <laughs> amazing. Even though I read it so many times, uh, I can't read it anymore because uh, for the proofreading and to check if everything is okay, I had to, uh, to not only me, some of my colleagues also had to read it too, one too many times. And yeah, but we're still really proud that we could put together this, um, this nice collection of, of innovation know-how into one golden book. Yeah, that's amazing. And of course, everybody's now interested to hear from your experience, what differentiates the successful cases from the failure cases? But a good differentiator is for sure the team, because sometimes some cases fail because the wrong people work together, or mm -hmm. maybe sometimes the team changes. For example, the one who was the, the person who uh, was pushing the initiative, who was the one creating the idea, who was pushing things for left the company or left for something else, and then somebody else took over. Mm -hmm. This sometimes could work out because we see it with startups. Sometimes it happens at the beginning they have a specific CEO as a founder CEO, and then somehow the board of directors decides, hey, maybe we need somebody else as the CEO, maybe to push things forward and so on. But there, I think the team is pretty, is like one thing. And then uh, another thing is... Um, like having having the the right so having a product that all, not only meets future as a current or future demands, but also shows how you make money with it. And I think this is the issue because you can have the best innovation project. It's so cool, people want it, but people are not willing to pay for it. So then it's not good. So exactly. the, then you can just skip it or yeah, do a pivot or whatever. But that you have to rethink it. And I think last but not least. Um, yeah, it has to solve a problem in the end. It's not only have to solve the need, but also the problem. And it has to be very, um, depending on what the product is, but especially financial products have to be really unobtrusive and be just part of your journey without disturbing you in doing something. Because I think banking in the end, banking is necessary. So the process itself, but banks are not. And I think the products also in the way how they have been designed are necessary as they will because I think the future will show that with all those new, with all those great technologies, that even those complicated things can be redesigned in a much better way than people thought or designed it back in the days. Yeah, amazing. And I think it really under, like, it really emphasizes the core statements that you both made. So first of all, failure is part of the process, and also it's sometimes much closer to success than you might think. So one or two more pivots and from what you think will not work, you actually turn a case around and say, oh, this is a perfect fit. And I think that's a really important uh, key takeaway, also mindset-wise, to not forget. Now, most important question, where can people actually get the book? Or the books, the better books, said. Yeah, yeah, better said, the books, because you can have it, buy it as a bundle. So you can buy it for sure, um, just the one or, or the other book. But um, we sell it through our shop on shop dot vntr.ch also like venture.ch and through our publisher fodder and fodder in Bern yes and they may in, I, I saw it even in some bookstores because some of our colleagues also posted a picture but I think it was in Bern in some bookstore okay. 
since we are located in Zurich, we don't know. <laughs> in water water no, maybe. <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe it's it. there and you haven't seen it yet. But you can yeah. order at them, yeah. Fantastic. So now we talked about your learnings, also about the current projects and the way that you've come so far. Of course, we're also very much interested about the future and what it brings. So first for you, Lorena, what have you planned? What's next for Mira? So as I already mentioned, um, we started this corporation with this um, little um, bank from Zurich. And we just had a few workshops with them. And next week, we're going to have a framing day um, with the Inno Architect again, um, because we're going into a other um, boost camp mm -hmm. in January or February next year, um, where we want to um, develop our first MVP. Um, we have to come up with a new name. Uh, maybe, Alicia, you have a good idea. <laughs> And then um, we are planning to launch our first MVP in Q1 next year. So we are focusing all our resources on this new pivot now. So you're, you're keeping busy. You're certainly not going to get bored. No, never. <laughs> Alicia, on the other hand, I also wonder what trends do you see on the horizon that will become more important next year for you? I think some of the key topics on my table for sure will be the whole concept of venture clienting it's like an expression i heard like so many times in the past two months and before i never had ha i never had heard of it so like to professionalize the process of how we collaborate with startups so mm -hmm. that we really have the challenges of the business unit um somehow how we can connect them to the startups that solve the perfect um that solve like uh, this this issue and then also to to explore more this whole ecosystem thinking in the end how could we start as banks also designing ecosystems where we are not in the end will be the orchestrator because sometimes you have to be open because the bigger player not always have to be the orchestrator in the end and another really hot topic that we are discussing <laughs> is the whole idea of venture building mm -hmm. because how about um, when innovation teams stop creating products that you have to spin into the company and more Think right from the beginning uh, as a as a startup and how you find funding as outside of your company and how you can spin it out. Oh, That's certainly, it. you're also keeping busy. Yeah, I will. <laughs> so to wrap up today's episode, we prepared some rapid fire questions for you, and I'm gonna start with you, Lorena. Ask for permission or ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. That's a clear choice for you. <laughs> yeah. Cool. For you, Alice, jump on a trend immediately or wait to see how things play out? I can't decide. I think it's both because it all it always depends. I have to be a lawyer, even though I'm not a lawyer, but it depends really on the situation. So because if you wait to jump on, then you're the late follower. And if you're too early, it can be that you're the innovator to create something, but it could be that somebody else exploits it better than you did. Mm -hmm. So 50-50 chance. Fair point. <laughs> Lorena, do you take decisions in five minutes, five hours, or five days? Something in between five hours and five minutes. <laughs> okay. Alicia, when was the last time that you changed your mind on something? This morning. <laughs> <laughs> so all the time, basically. Yeah, I think I think yeah, this is something. Maybe this is like uh, some week. No, no, it's not a weakness, but this is something I do. So I have some strict. Um, when I decide on something, but I'm also pretty flexible in changing what I'm 
thinking in in some cases so you have to be yeah i mean if there are new information that you didn't have before it's totally fair exactly or you after 25 24 hours you realize oh maybe i was too stupid yesterday to decide on that now (laughs) i have i have more facts uh that that make this decision easier yeah and a final question to both of you first for you lorena what startup would you like to have co-founded um, many <laughs> startups, but um, if I have to um, come up with one startup, it's probably Doconomy. It's a Swedish impact tech startup that focuses on um, climate change. So they developed an ecosystem with um, measures and tools to um, educate individuals and corporates to reduce the CO2 footprint. And I just looked into um, the um, startup recently because of another project I'm working on, the Swiss Climate Challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very fascinated by what they're doing and um, how fast they um, grew. Amazing. And what startup is it for you, Alice? I think it's Airbnb Mm -hmm. because they changed how we make vacations. So Mm -hmm. and they made it possible and more affordable for everybody. I think this is something that I... If I could have, I would have. But I think back then I wouldn't have sensed that they would be so successful. I would have said, (laughs) hey, this is such a silly idea. Forget about it. (laughs) Of course, there's always a lot of skepticism at the beginning. (laughs) Wonderful. Lorena, Alice, thank you so much for stopping by. Lots of success with whatever you'll be tackling next year and beyond. And hope to see you here again very soon. Take care. Thank you so much. You too. Stay happy. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.